All right, this morning we are digging in um, to our text. This is the... uh, Today we're getting into some details. Over the first two messages of this series, um, we have been looking at the big picture of love, sex, and, and intimacy this thing that the Bible calls oneness. And we, and we take a look at how sex is, is a gift, a great gift, but it's not a gift that is meant to be an end in and of itself. It is in the greater context of oneness, right? The God of all creation is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three who's, one what, um, which is really hard to wrap your head, head around. But, but what it tells us is that God is by his nature, eternal community. Right? He is the eternal knowing and being known, giving and receiving, loving and being loved. He, he is eternal dance of love. God is completely self-contained in, in his experience. He, he's not just the concept of love. He is the experience of love because by his very nature, he gives and receives love. The reason we know what community is, we know what relationships are, is because that part of us reflects that part of God, right? We were created in the image of God. And so for us to understand sex, we need to understand it in the context of this greater gift, that God wants us to move into oneness with other people so we can experience, in a sense, the triune nature of God. None of us were designed to be isolated or alone. We were designed to experience the power of oneness, which is love. And last week, we took a look at the four streams of love, um, that, that while we only have one word in the English language to describe it, it's actually a much more complex idea. And, uh, and, and we, so we took a look at four Greek words that, that help us unpack different natures of love and how when we operate in those, it allows us to move into the intimacy of, uh, of oneness, whether it's in friendship um, or in um, family or in sexual union, uh, as we move into covenant oneness um, with people in, in marriage. Ultimately, um, in that big picture, sex is part of a bigger picture that images to us the nature of God, that we have a God who longs for relationship. We have a God who longs to pour out His love and to move into oneness with His creatures. And in fact, that marriage itself is a metaphor for the mission of God. That, that In the same way, um, the, the initial command was a man to leave his father and his mother and to hold fast to or move into covenant with his wife and the two shall become one. That that, in fact, describes to us the nature and activity of God. That Jesus left His Father. That He left the safety of home. He went on mission Um, to pursue his bride and to win her back. And he did that by living the life we should have lived and dying the death we deserve to die and rising again, proving that uh, the payment for our sin was made. And then invites us to believe in him. And in believing in him, he's inviting us into a new covenant with him, a covenant sealed by his blood, uh, where our merit is earned not by our behavior or our performance, but by his obedience and his success um, in pursuing God, right? And so we have, um, that's why the New Testament calls the church the bride of Christ. Metaphorically, we are the bride, the one who has been pursued, and he is the groom, the one who pursues and invites us into intimacy and oneness. From that big picture, we understand the context of marriage. We understand the context of human relationships. Um, but this week, we're, we're going to be getting very practical, okay? This week, we're going from kind of the Google satellite view right? The 30,000 foot view. And and we're getting the Google street view this week. We're we're getting very practical and we're going to be talking about how it actually applies to our relationships, what it looks like to pursue intimacy in a healthy way. Um, Now to help us 
with uh, starting this off, I, I did some research and found some relational experts who were willing to share with us some of the results of, of their research and great wisdom, um, and they agreed to basically put a video together for us uh, to help us out with that. So let's watch the video to, to kind of kick this off. kiss today and it's just so mind-blowing that I can't just feel it. Oh, it goes to my brain, it goes to my heart, and it just goes to my brain so much it just goes at kablooey. I want to talk about how to impress ladies for all the boys. I got some information from my brother, and he gave me good information. I mean, he's he's ha- got a girlfriend. For who? She didn't tweet me. She must have her milk. You pressed me. That's what I You are? Yeah. How? Yeah. Oh, wow. And he can't do that? Nope. Wow. You gotta fight for that girl. Alright, that's some, um, that's some great advice right there. Really appreciate them sharing their wisdom. Here's the thing, you guys. Um, we're talking about attraction. Today, we're going to move on beyond attraction. We talked about attraction last week, and we've unpacked some of that, that idea of what causes attraction, um, that, that chemistry piece. It really is mysterious. I mean, it's one of those things that, that can be a little infuriating at times, right? There are times when we feel that chemistry and attraction for somebody, and we don't even want it. There are other times we want it and we want to pursue it and they don't feel it toward us. And, and there are other times when someone has it toward us and we don't have it towards them and that just is hard. And it can be awkward. It can be challenging. It can be difficult. And, and, and um, this, is, this is the human story. I mean, this is part of what everybody's had to struggle through. Agur is, a, is a, a super wise guy from the Old Testament, wise guy in the sense that he was wise. Um, he wrote in the book of Proverbs in chapter 30, there are three things that are too wonderful for me, four things I do not understand the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. Um, now, what does he mean? I, you know, honestly, I don't really know, uh, other than we're stringing four things together that are rather mysterious, things that we kind of take for granted until we actually start thinking about it, right? And then we start looking at it. We're like, okay, that bird really is soaring, or, or that snake has no legs, or, or that ship has no compass, right? There are things that, oh yeah, if, you, if you're a scientist, you're like, I totally understand those things. That's great. Um, good luck with love. Um, love is mysterious, and it is hard, and, and it doesn't matter how scientifically smart you are. In fact, that may make it worse, because you're going to actually try to understand something that's very difficult to understand. It, it's, a, it's a reactionary thing, that attraction piece. It, it responds to environmental cues, and, and, and it can be mysterious, right? So we don't fully understand what triggers attraction and love and chemistry, but here's the thing. We can be wise with how we use it. 
how we respond to it, what we do with it. So we're going to be looking at a section of poetry in the Song of Songs that actually moves progressively through a relationship. It begins with, with a stage of pursuit, um, where we have a, a man pursuing a woman, into a stage of wooing, where that man is actively wooing that woman, to a stage of warning, where she is warning him about um, that increasing intimacy, and then consummation and intimacy, where they come together. And in the context of the Song of Songs, um, that intimacy and that, that coming together is always in the sense, uh, biblically, the bigger biblical picture of covenant oneness, um, that they move through that process of, of moving into what we call marriage today, okay? So we're going we're gonna to take a look at our text, and we're going to look at the whole poem, and, and we're really just going to focus on the first part this morning. So let's take a look at our poem. It starts in, in verses 8 and 9, and that's the section that deals with pursuit, okay? Uh, it says, "'The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. All right, so in this stage of the relationship, she's describing his pursuit of her. She's the one speaking throughout the poem. So she's, in a sense, looking back over their relationship and, and, and poetically describing her experience through that. Even when he's speaking, she's recounting what he said. And she's describing that, that period of, of longing, of yearning, where there is a mutual attraction and now pursuit begins. And it truly is a delightful stage of the relationship where, where there is an increasing desire to spend time with someone, to be near someone, to get to know someone. And it is, it is something that is both joyful and painful, right? I mean, it is this thing where it's like, I, I want more, but there are limits to what I can get. It's the stage of increasing intimacy, increasing desire, increased discovery, right? Because during this stage, a lot of times you don't really fully know what you're getting into or what you're dealing with. You're just kind of dealing with these mysterious heart issues and you're kind of opening them up and exploring them. And it is delightfully complex, right? It is, it is wonderfully rewarding and, 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 and sometimes very, very hard, right? And so that's what she's describing is, is this season of, of, of um, attraction, right? Um, the second part of the poem, starting in verse 10 through verse 14, is him wooing her, moving into that stage of relationship where he is actually calling her um, really into covenant relationship. Starting in verse 10, my beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past and the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth and the time for singing has come and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the cleft of the rocks, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. So at this stage of the poem, um, what we see is him basically calling the woman out of her home to join him in the garden, this area that he very, very um, sensuously describes. Um, and when we talk about sensual language, remember, we're not talking about sexual language, although it can be. We're talking about language that appeals to the senses, 
right? It appeals to the, to the way things look and smell and taste, right? And this, this poem, this book, is filled with sensual language. And as he's describing the garden, it's a very sensual description. It is rich with color and vibrancy and smells, and, and it is full of springtime, which, of course, speaks of a time of fertility, and he's inviting her out. He's wooing her out of her house into this garden. Now, gardens throughout this poem refer to the place of intimacy. He is inviting her into a place of increased intimacy, joy, uh, and ultimately sexual union. So the garden, whenever you see a garden referenced in here, um, it's either the place of intimacy or it's physically describing um, the woman's sexual body right? Uh, there, are, there are places where when it's talking about the garden, it's actually talking about her genitalia. It's talking about her body and, and his reaction to it, okay? In this case, it is an invitation to the place of intimacy, the place where they can move into greater oneness. Um, he compares her to a dove that is in the cleft of the rock, um, speaking of her um, healthy isolation, her, her at this point separation from him, and he's inviting her into the garden. The next part of the poem is a warning where she's speaking to him in verse 15. She says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. Um, the relationship at this stage is moving forward. She is, re- she is responding to his wooing and they are moving into intimacy. I would say at this stage in the game, we're either already into covenant oneness or just about to move into covenant oneness where they are going to actually move into marriage with one another. And she is appealing to him and saying to him, what we have is delightful, but I need you to protect it. What we have is worth treasuring, but I need you to protect it. The little foxes, um, pretty graphic image, and, and, and it's, it's, it's metaphorically powerful. The foxes would come into the vineyard and would actually eat the, the blossoms off of the grapevine before they could actually blossom into fruit. And so what she's referring to are things that come into their place of intimacy, into their garden, and, and basically um, eat the blossoms that, that keep things from coming to fruitfulness. Right? Now, if you can think about human relationships, intimate relationships, what one thing tends to get in the way of intimacy more than anything else? I'd say conflict. Now, it could, of course, it's metaphorical, and it could refer to anything that could actually come in and ruin that place of intimacy. But, but conflict is by far one of the most powerful things that will come in and destroy our ability to move into intimacy with one another. So there's a sense in which she's calling him to handle conflict wisely. So that they can move into intimacy. That they don't have those, the, 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 the blossoms, the, the grapes, the, the fruitfulness destroyed before it even has a chance to blossom in the relationship. And so she's calling him to be wise, calling him to a warning. Now, by the way, as we look forward in the next two weeks, that actually describes our next two weeks of sermons. Next week, we're going to be looking at this wooing piece, how um, there is a sense in which um, we're called to continually pursue and woo one another, whether it is um, uh, a pursuit toward marriage or a pursuit in marriage. Uh, That's next week. And we're going to be looking at a very, very powerful passage that I think is going to uh, have a lot to say, um, especially to our married folks. And the week after that, we're going to be dealing with this idea of conflict. There's there's a whole uh, number of poems in here that deal with that idea. How do we, um, in a healthy way, deal with, because in conflict, we have the fear of isolation in combat with the fear of intimacy. 
There's an exposing element of intimacy, and there is, um, but we're driven toward it, and there's a fear of isolation, and we're driven away from it. But the, we have these conflict, uh, conflicting fears in our heart that get in the way of our ability to move well into intimacy. So that's kind of where we're going over the next two weeks. The poem ends in verses 16 and 17 with really a description of consummation. This is where um, she has fully um, responded to his invitation. She begins, my beloved is mine and I am his. It's a beautiful, powerful um, statement of oneness, right? I, I, I exist for you and you exist for me. Right? It's not that I've lost my individual identity. I've actually discovered more of it by giving myself to you. There's a sense in which I no longer belong to me. I belong to you. And there's a sense in which you no longer belong to you. You belong to me. I have given myself to you and you have given yourself to me. I am his and he is mine. I no longer have to fight for my own good because he fights for my good. And he no longer has to fight for his own good because I fight for his good. There's a sense in which we now have this, this great reversal where I'm no longer self-interested, I'm, I'm you interested. I've given myself, I have, I have made myself vulnerable, I have laid myself bare and open to you. And you've done the same with me. And it is intimate and it is loving and it is the place of, of powerful intimacy and oneness. And that emotional intimacy, that spiritual oneness, of course, is, con- is consummated in, in physical oneness, in, in the, the union of of sex, right? And that's really what we have described in, in the rest of the verse, right? He, he grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Metaphorically, she's talking about him engaging in sexual activity, grazing among the lilies. When? Till the day breathes, right? All night long, right? This is her basically saying, I want you to consume me. I want you to delight in me all night long, until the day breathes, until the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag among the cleft mountains. The, the Hebrew here is, is mountains of Bether. And a lot of Bible translations just leave it just like that, mountains of Bether. But Bether is not a place. Um, there's no geographical reference. Bether is a word that means um, cleaved or cleavage. She's saying play among the cleaved mountains. Okay, I don't, you know what she's talking about, right? I mean, this is basically her saying, come and delight in me. I have given myself wholly to you. And in the consummation of this holy union of intimacy, I give myself completely, physically, erotically to you. Consummation. And what we see here is a cycle of pursuit, wooing, warning, and consummation. And that cycle has to take place over and over and over again in our relationships for us to find deeper and deeper levels of intimacy, deeper and deeper levels of joy. Okay? So this morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a look at the first part of this poem, specifically on pursuit. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 8 and 9 and the ideas of what it means for us to pursue intimacy in a healthy way. Uh, We'll be looking at the later stages of the poem in the coming weeks. So first part of the poem, verses 8 and 9. Let's look back up there to refresh ourselves. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. What we have here is she's describing her young man um, bounding over mountains, leaping over hills, right? He is pursuing. He is chasing. There's nothing that's going to stop him. There's nothing that is going to get in his way, nothing that is too inconvenient, Nothing that is too hard, 
nothing that will, you know what I'm saying? Like, like he is going to inconvenience himself. He is going to suffer. He is going to do whatever he needs to do to be near her, right? You ever experienced that? That sense of desperate yearning and longing to be near someone that you delight in, knowing they delight also in you? Right? And she's talking about, she's reveling in a sense in the fact that he longs for her that deeply. It meets a very deep need within her to know that he needs her so deeply. Right? He, she's celebrating this idea that, that he is yearning for me and pursuing. Right, So we have the young man pursuing and the young woman wanting to be pursued. She's the one talking here, describing her waiting and, and his determination to get to her. And, um, and so poetically, she's talking about him overcoming obstacles and, and just doing whatever needs to happen, right? Verse 9, she gives us a simile. She says, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Um, behold, there he stands. So a gazelle, a uh, young stag, obviously she's comparing him to animals that are sleek and strong and fast and quick of foot, um, that they are, are quickly um, dealing with obstacles and, and are powerful enough to overcome them. In today's language, you basically say she's calling him a stud. Um, that's kind of what's going on. She's like, he is my young stud, right? Um, I, I yearn for him and his pursuit of me is doing something to my heart that I, I value. And she is reveling in his desire for her. So at this stage of the game, this stage of relationship, pursuit is all about, in a sense, increasing tension, right? There's a tension of longing and, and, a, and a tension of, of wanting and, and a tension of delighting. And, and it's an increasing appetite, right? And, and the pursuit is all about um, uh, increasing it through um, invitation and response. Inviting greater trust, responding with greater trust. Inviting greater delight, responding with greater delight. That's this series of, of, of um, things are, are, it's delightful. It's a lot of fun. And, and often, let's do is let's be honest, sometimes this is the stage when we just really kind of get stupid. Um, we can do dumb things in the name of love, right? This is when guys... Um, basically kind of lose sense sometimes. Um, and, uh, and, and they will do whatever they think they need to do to get the attention of the one they love, uh, to get her to like him, to get her to notice him, to get her to, to pay attention to him, right? And, and so he can act a little foolish. And ladies, don't lie, you like it, right? It's, it's, it's flattering that somebody would make a fool of themselves on your behalf. You're like, man, that's so sweet. He's such an idiot, right? He's, he's, he's acting so dumb, but I know it's, cause, right? it's like this sense of, 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 of just... Well, all right, so in 1988, give you an illustration. Um, it, I was in my second year at Emmaus Bible College. Um, I had just become a believer. Lauren and I um, became friends in my first year. We didn't like each other when we first met, and then we kind of became study partners. She was the only person that would actually sit with me and help me learn how to study. Um, I had cheated my way all the way through high school, so studying was new to me. And um, she had patience with me and showed me how to use a library. And, and pretty soon, we actually enjoyed being with one another. There was actually a friendship that developed, and out of that friendship... Um, a growing level of, of just joy in one another's company. We started praying together as I became a believer. And, 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 and um, by the time we got to our second year, everyone around us was telling us, when are you guys going to start dating? And we're like, what? You know, and then we started dating. I was like, okay, we finally admitted that we were deeply interested in one another. So come Christmas, my second year, I'm going home to California for my Christmas break. And, um, and I'm going home to visit my family, but I cut my trip home short. 
because I couldn't be away from Lauren that long, right? So I drive, I have a Volkswagen van that I had purchased in California. Um, I drove it from Dubuque, Iowa, up to Chicago, parked it at a friend's house, flew home to California, um, spent a little bit of time in California, then flew back to Chicago to drive down to Owensboro, Kentucky, to spend a couple days with Lauren and her family, pick her up, and then drive her back to Dubuque, Iowa. Pretty crazy loop, but I, I just, I, I, who else was going to drive her back, right? It had to be me. And so... Um, <laughs> I fly back into Chicago, not realizing that a snowstorm had come in and being a California guy, not really understanding what that means. I walk out at my friend's house, walk out, and my van is literally covered by 12 feet of snow because there was so much snow on the road. The snow plows came by and just buried everything that was parked on the sides, my van being there. Um, and so I had to dig my van out of, of 10, 12 feet of snow. It took me most of the day. So it was late at night when I actually hit the road. And it was supposed to be about a six and a half, seven hour drive. It took me uh, eight or nine, I don't remember exactly. Um, here's the thing, you guys. My van, it was a Volkswagen van, was not built for the Midwest. Um, it was a California van through and through. And, and, and when I first got it, um, it, my van, my van had no heat. I don't mean it had like a little bit of heat, like it had no heat because I had actually taken the heater boxes off my van in California. You don't need them. And so it actually gives you a few more horsepower. If you put some J tubes on there and just vent that exhaust straight through, I literally had no heat. It was like 15 below zero that night. I was driving a mobile refrigeration unit for eight hours. I had every piece of clothing I owned on my body. Multiple pairs of pants, all my shirts, all my jackets, a ski mask, literally. All you could see were my eyes. I had to be careful how I would breathe because if I breathed straight out, a stream of steam would come out, hit the window, and turn to ice on the inside of the window. So I had to actually breathe to the side. I remember this all very vividly. And I was driving along. And I'm playing the music real loud to keep awake, and I'm pounding my hands on the steering wheel to keep my blood flowing, and I'm pounding one foot, and then I would hit the gas with my left foot and pound my right foot. Eight hours, sub-zero temperatures inside my van. I'm an idiot, okay? I'm an idiot. I have since learned about hypothermia, what that does. Um, I was in danger, right? But why did I do it, right? Because I knew when I got there, Somebody was going to be waiting up. And I was hoping it wasn't my father-in-law or, or Lauren's dad. I'm kidding. He was asleep. But, but I knew she was eager to see me. And I was eager to see her. I didn't care if it was sub-zero, right? I didn't get there and complain, you know, like, oh, man, that was such a hard trip. Such a, I'm angry and cold. And I was like, there you are, right? It didn't even bother me. Why? Because the delight outweighed the suffering. Right? I didn't even think about it. It wasn't like, I mean, the whole way there, I'm like, I, this is great. I get to see the girl that I love. Right? So that's what happens. Right? Love drives us to pursue. Something in me says I am willing to overcome any obstacle to be near you, to win your affection. And so it causes men to, to bound over mountains, to overcome obstacles, right? Guys change when they, when they fall in love, when, when they start pursuing the woman they're attracted to, guys change, right? They start dressing differently, right? They're suddenly like, oh, you respond well when I don't wear sweats. All right. I won't wear sweats 24 hours a day. You, you like collared shirts. Okay. I'm getting collared shirts, right? You, you like me when I match. Okay. I will match. Right. And all of a sudden he has a complete transformation of his wardrobe. He's never spent more than 50 cents on an item of clothing. And now he's out there buying like 50 pair, $50 pair of jeans. Right. Why? Because, because he wants to impress her when she's happy. He's happy when she responds. Well, 
he, res- he he's delighted, right? So he changes the way he looks. He, he starts trimming his beard, right? He's still manly, but, but he starts trimming it. He starts taking showers. He, he tries to get in shape. Instead of spending all of his time playing Xbox and just sitting around the house, he starts thinking about how can I actually make myself more attractive to this lovely, lovely lady, right? So he starts working out and he starts taking care of himself and he starts reading things that she knows she's interested in or looking into things that she knows she wants to talk about, right? He's actually moving himself out of his little little tiny world of comfort into this world of her experience, right? He starts watching chick flicks and, and, and it's not just action and adventure. He actually laughs and, and enjoys it. Why? Because she is, right? He even takes a hand at writing bad poetry and, and sliding it across the table. And if he's not brave enough, he, he finds Hallmark and says, here, this person's words represent me, right? Here, take and read this. He, he wants her to respond to him. Now, some people say this is all bad. This is all bad because really it's just about him being fake. This isn't really him changing. This is him trying to provoke a response in, in her. But you guys, I want you to hear this. This is actually a good part of the process. It can be fake if the guy's only after sex. If the guy's only after a short-term response and he's being manipulative. Right? We're going to talk about that, how to identify that and avoid that because that is bad. But this is actually a healthy part of the process. For some guys, it's the first time in their life they've actually been motivated to push themselves out of their comfort zone. To actually challenge themselves to endure discomfort to achieve a wanted goal. That's healthy. That's good. At this stage of the game, guys are growing in their emotional maturity and learning what it means to to delay gratification for a greater good to endure short-term discomfort for a greater good, right? I didn't even think about that eight-hour trip down to to, uh, Kentucky in in sub-zero temperatures, right? I was enduring discomfort. Why? Because there was something greater that motivated me, right? And in doing so, here's what happens. I grow. I get more mature, right? So, So I start thinking about, okay, we get delayed in a trip, and normally I get really cranky because I like to get on a trip and go and get there, and, and now, you know, you have to stop for the bathroom all the time, and you know what? I'm not going to complain. Why? Because you're with me. And so I learn to put my preferences aside, my petty uh, assumptions aside, and, and maybe for the first time in my life, grow in emotional maturity, that ability to endure discomfort without getting sour and self-centered and... and um, and grousing. So he is pursuing her, right? Because love pushes him outside of himself. It pushes him into areas of challenge and discomfort and growth because his desire for her is greater than his desire for comfort. His desire to make her happy increasingly becomes greater than his desire to make himself happy. And as he grows in strength and maturity and and learns how to love, she responds to that pursuit. Now, where's the girl in this poem? Take a look at the end of of verse 9. Fairly interesting. Behold, he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Okay, he's not being a creeper here. This isn't about him showing up late at night and being a creeper peeking through the window. It's him being in his proper place. Metaphorically, a wall in this poetry, speaks of healthy separation. She is inside the wall. Now, culturally, they would have understood what this meant. Um, They would have multiple houses 
um, that were shared on a common piece of land in the family, and they'd build a wall around their land, and that would keep the family in and keep outsiders out. It was, an, it was a place of safety, um, and it was a place of, of family. And during this period of time, um, she's behind her wall, which is one of the reasons I say that during this part of the poem, they're not married, right? She is still behind her wall. She is separated from him in a healthy way, right? Um, to show you this image of, of the wall, um, which runs throughout, I want you to look at a crazy little poem down at, over in chapter eight um, that kind of illustrates what we're talking about. In chapter eight, there's this crazy little poem. Keep your finger in chapter two. Flip over to chapter eight. We're going to start in verse eight. But um, here, the speakers are actually a pair of brothers that are talking about their little sister. And brothers, the older brothers in this poetry, kind of a complex image. They, they are very protective of their little sister. But like older brothers, they're not always the kindest. Um, they're not always the most wise, right? So they can be overprotective. They can be domineering. Um, and, and she at times becomes a little resentful of that. But we can see um, this healthy use of this image of the wall in this little poem. Take a look at verse eight. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. All right, they're not mocking her. Um, this is not them, uh, you know, belittling her. They're saying that she has not yet come to sexual maturity. We have a little sister who is not yet sexually mature. She is coming of age. And as she comes of age, there will come um, an awakening of erotic desire and, and her um, sense of sexual being. Um, but at this point, she's not. So what shall we do for our little sister on the day when she is spoken for? There will be a day when, when she wakes up or comes through puberty and, 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 and she will want to pursue and be pursued. What will we do for our sister? Verse 9, if she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. All right, a wall, pretty graphic image. There's no going in, there's no going out, right? If she is a wall, in other words, if she is holding her, her, her sexual tension, her, her awakening sexual desires in proper reserve, if she is growing in emotional maturity so that she is not leaning into sexual behavior to compensate for emotional woundedness, if she is able to actually move into healthy friendships and relationships, but reserve that part of herself, that, that awakening erotic desire in its proper place, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. In other words, we're going to celebrate that. We're going to build this, this, this crown of glory over her. But, um, the end of the verse, if she is a door... We will enclose her with boards of cedar. All right, if she is a door, a door obviously is a passageway um, that allows foot traffic and activity. Um, so if she becomes promiscuous, if she becomes um, uh, emotionally and sexually immature, using her sexual identity and behavior in ways that are not appropriate, we're going to nail that door shut, right? These are older brothers acting as very protective older brothers. They're basically saying, um, we're going to protect her from men who would take advantage of her, prey on her, and leave her wounded, okay? Um, so there's, what they're talking about is this, this um, healthy sense of reserve, this healthy sense of separation until the appropriate time. Now, the girl's response is, is kind of great in verse 10. She it's both appreciative and a little bit snarky toward her brothers. I was a wall and my breasts are like towers. Don't insult me. Um, then I was in his lies like one who finds peace. In other words, I was a wall. I, I grew in sexual and emotional maturity. I reserved myself in proper ways. And then the man who won my heart came to me and he found within me shalom. 
or peace, wholeness, well-being. And so it's this kind of this, she's both appreciating and resenting her older brothers here a little bit. Um, But it is talking about the progression. So what I want to do is highlight that idea of the wall. So going back to chapter 2, she is behind the wall, and he is outside of it, and he is showing up to woo her out. He is inviting her into covenant oneness, into marriage, into a, uh, a sexual erotic relationship um, that is the fulfillment of all of this yearning. He is pursuing her and wooing her. But she is appropriately guarded and they are appropriately separated at this time. All right, we're going to move on in the next section to him actually, what it looks like for him to woo her, for him to describe this place of shared relationship and shared intimacy. And we're going to be talking about some some pretty powerful insights, both for people that are dating and married. Um, We're going to dig into that next week. For now, what I want to do is just bring home some applications for us, some ways that this text, I think, informs us today. First, I'm going to encourage you to pursue appropriate intimacy, but don't awaken erotic love, sexual love, before it's time. Pursue appropriate intimacy. Here's the thing, you guys. We all need intimate relationships. We all need human connectedness. We were all created in the image of God, and God is a God of community, a triune God. It doesn't mean we all need sexual relationships, but it does mean we all need intimate relationships. Every form of human relationship has at its heart a form of intimacy, a form in which we are, in a sense, um, yielding ourselves exposing ourselves, opening ourselves up in in transparency and inviting someone in to know us, to treasure us, to challenge us, to help us grow. A good friendship is an intimate relationship. If you think about your best friends, they are people that you have deep connections with. These are people that not only entertain you, they probably do, you probably have a lot of fun with them, but they don't just entertain you. They are people that challenge you. If your closest friends never challenge you, you're not intimate with those friends. You have fans, not friends. You have people that are around you that reflect you to you, and you're not being challenged to move outside of your comfort zone, challenged to move outside of of your self-centeredness. If that's what you have, you probably have a club of very self-centered people that are coming together to share activities and then are planning to leave their own way when things start getting difficult. People that are truly intimate with you are people that are going to help you walk through the hard things. And in fact, sometimes will be the ones challenging you as you go through hard things to grow. They are people that will inconvenience themselves for you and you will inconvenience yourself for them. Because intimacy requires you to move out of yourself, to sacrifice of yourself, to grow in emotional maturity and invite the other into that space of growth. For those of you who are single and are not in relationships, and honestly, you're looking at it and you're like, I may not pursue um, a romantic sexual relationship any time in the near future. What you need to realize is that this is absolutely vital to you. You need close, intimate friendships. And you need to pursue it, right? Because your soul will wither in isolation. You were never created to image God on your own. And you can't experience God's love fully unless you're in community with others. So you don't have to have like 10,000 friends. Don't, if you're an introvert, don't like totally freak out and die on me right now. Right? I'm not saying that you need to go to every party and you need to be inter- interacting with every person, but I am saying someone needs to be invited into your world. 
It can't just be you, your stuffed animals, and your favorite books. Okay? You need to be inviting people in. You need to be having conversations. People need to know who you are. Now, we're probably not talking about a lot of people. The reality is most of us don't have a lot of super deep friends, right? The challenge with extroverts is a lot of times they have 100 friends and none of them are deep. They have 100 people they can hang out with, 100 people they can interact with in social settings, but they don't have one that actually understands the workings of their heart. They don't have one that actually asks them hard questions, that understands their fears and their hopes and, and their desires and their difficulties. We need people around us. And we need to pursue it, you guys. We need to pursue it. If you're single and you've just been waiting for somebody to come and knock on your door and you've been hanging around all these people and you keep going to these social events, you're like, oh, these people, they just don't care about me. They don't love me. They're not asking me about me. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and stop being passive. Pursue intimacy, right? You're like, I don't know if I can do that. What if I get rejected? You might, just like everybody else. And you're going to be okay. That's why, of course, we need to be going deep with the gospel. Right? We talked about this last week. Our deepest needs need to be met by our experience of God's love for us. And as we go deep in God's love for us, it empowers us to move out in love toward others, even if they don't always reciprocate, even if they don't always love back. We need to be going deep in our relationship with God, being empowered to move into intimate relationships with others. And we need it, you guys. We need it. They are, um, they're a lot of work. Good friendships are a lot of work, but they're absolutely worth it. Um, the themes we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks are going to be focused on relationships that are of a, of a romantic kind, of erotic kind. But I'm going to encourage those of you who are single and maybe even committed to living single lives, um, take the principles and apply them to yourself. Don't just check out or feel jealous of others. Um, actually think about how this stuff applies to where you are in your current situation. So here's the thing. We all need to be pursuing appropriate intimacy, but we need to make sure we're doing it wisely. Uh, we mentioned this last week, and it's worth reiterating. Three or four times, I think three times through the course of, of the Song of Songs, she, the, the woman, speaks to the group of the chorus, the, the, the daughters of Jerusalem, and says to them, I adjure you, or I put this weight on you, I command you, don't awaken love, erotic to love, sexual love, before it's ready. In other words, there's an appropriate time to awaken erotic desires. Um, if you do it in the right way and at the right time, it is a beautiful gift that helps us discover an even more beautiful gift called oneness. If you do it in the wrong way, at the wrong time, in the wrong place, it actually becomes destructive, right? A fire in the fireplace can warm the entire house. A fire in the um, Christmas tree is, is, I don't know, it could be fun for a little while, but it's not going to end well, right? There's an appropriate place, an appropriate time for it unless you burn down your whole house. The deepest, most painful hurts I help people walk through tend to be sexual. The deepest, most long-lasting scars tend to be from from, um, sexual woundedness. God can redeem from that, and He does. And God can restore, and He does. But you guys, let's be wise, right? Let's not be stupid and light our Christmas trees on fire because we want the thrill of the moment, right? We need to be wise. We don't want to awaken erotic love before it's time. We want to be wise in the handling of our desires. The woman in this poem stayed behind her wall. It was a season of her life in which that was perfectly appropriate, and that speaks of her separation, basically her saying, I will not awaken these desires until it is time. 
It's not completely on her, though. Dude's in the poem. The guy's not trying to climb over the wall. Um, it is on both of us. If you're in a dating relationship with somebody, you should both be committed to managing this area of tension well, which means you have to talk about it, right? You have to actually talk about these things and actually set boundaries and honor these boundaries. If you're dating someone who is continually pushing you to compromise sexually, to go further than you agreed upon or said you wanted to go, I'm going to give you the best and wisest advice I can, break up break up. Why? Because that person is acting selfishly, impulsively, and self-centeredly. That's not going to change. That's not going to change. So you may give in with the idea of protecting the relationship or, or out of fear or even out of desire for yourself, but you need to know that in doing so, you are actually um, investing in something that is going to hurt. Because that self-centeredness will resurface and redirect itself, I guarantee you. You need to be wise. You need to set boundaries. When, where, and under what circumstances you will be together and intimate in whatever form or fashion that is, whether it's in conversation or in physical contact. Um, one of the earliest illustrations I had of this, I, I was not raised in a Christian home, and, and um, this was not something that I really understood. Um, but my mom sent me to a Christian high school for the last two years of my my high school experience, I hated it. I wasn't a Christian, um, and, and it was really bad. Um, that's where I think I really developed my deep distaste for the Christian subculture. Um, but during this period of time, I had an English teacher by the name of Dave Newell who had a profound impact on me. I don't think it's any surprise that I ended up becoming an English teacher myself. Um, but this guy, he wasn't afraid to talk about real things. He would engage real literature. He wasn't afraid of words or ideas. He would actually talk about things that were real. He wouldn't just echo um, platitudes or empty ideas. Um, and, and so I found him actually just this incredible breath of fresh air. And, and, and I would talk literature with him and I would talk life with him. And, and, and um, I would you know, just it expanded my world of, of ideas. He told me a story, though, that actually, um, uh, like, knocked me sideways, and I still remember it to this day. He told me about his dating relationship. He was then married with his, with his wife. They had been in Christian college. He had become a believer. Um, and because of previous experiences, he set very firm boundaries for their physical relationship. Every night at 9 o'clock, they were done. Like, they would not spend time together after 9 o'clock. No movies, no social functions, no activities. Nine o'clock, it was done. And, and if he had the opportunity, he would walk her back to her dorm and he would tell her good night. And he would, he would give her a hug and a quick kiss and be gone. And if he found that she was clinging to him, and this was actually what he was explaining to me as he was describing the situation where something was going on and she just clung to him, right? And he physically took her and pushed her away which sounds really, really weird, <laughs> right? You'd think uh, an unbelieving high school student, when he's hearing this story, be like, man, you are so old-fashioned, right? Man, you are so backwards. But it's the exact opposite. I think for the first time in my life, I had the thought in my head, I think that's love. You did what you needed to do to protect her. You knew your past. You knew your heart. And you did what you needed to do. You went through the discomfort, her discomfort toward you. Like she was disappointed in that moment. She was unhappy with him in that moment, but he was willing to endure that discomfort, willing to endure her unhappiness with him for her greater good. And even as an unbelieving high school student, I'm like, that's not anything I've ever experienced. That, 
I'm used to selfishness. I'm used to people using people in a sense, like, like you want me? Well, great. I want you too. And let's just be mutually users of each other, right? That's what I was used to. But here's a guy who was actually putting her good above his needs. Don't awaken sexual desire before it's time. You need to love the person you're with more than you desire gratification for yourself. That is one of the hallmarks of emotional maturity. The ability to endure discomfort for a greater goal. The ability to to delay gratification. Knowing that there is a greater fulfillment for the person you love later. It is the opposite of selfishness. It is the opposite of self-centeredness. I am not going to use you. I am going to protect you. You need two people in a relationship committed to protecting one another. Do not awaken love before it's time. Secondly, pursue character, not image. Pursue character, not image. She calls him her gazelle, her, her stag, right? She's like, you're my, you're my young stud, right? Um, this image basically calls out this idea that, that she not only desires him, but she respects him. There's something deep within her that, that he calls respect out of her and she willingly respects him. Ladies, you need to know the difference between a stud and a donkey because they can look awfully similar. They really can. Um, you need to know that there are some guys who will say whatever they need to say to get whatever they want. They can really talk a good talk. And if they find out that's what you like, that's what they'll talk about. If they find out that spiritual things are important to you, they'll talk about spiritual things. If they find out that going to church is important to you, oh, yeah, I'll go to church. I mean, they're going to do whatever they need to do. But all that behavior is really about getting what they want. And often girls will believe whatever they want to believe in order to get what they want. A guy will willingly tell them lies and the girl will willingly believe the lies, knowing they're lies, because ultimately it allows both of them to get what they want. So they deceive themselves and they pay the price. Ladies, just because he is confident, just because he can make you laugh, just because he isn't like your last boyfriend, doesn't mean he's a keeper. Doesn't mean he's the one that you should be yielding yourself to. In, uh, in Song of Solomon chapter 1, um, the woman is speaking And she's describing her love for the guy. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. We talked about that uh, last week, the intoxicating effect of love. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Your name is oil poured out. What she's saying is is not that I just love the sound of your name, but your name speaks of, of, of honorability. Your character, that's what she's saying. Your character is fragrant. Your character is beautiful. Not just your form, but who you are calls beautiful things out of me. I love you, not because you just look like the right person, but because you are the person that I want to be with. There's a strength, there's an attractiveness, there's a a character Ladies, I'm going to encourage you, don't just ask, do I love him? Ask the more relevant question, which is, do I respect him? 
You will love what you respect, but you cannot keep loving what you don't respect. You can have an emotional response to someone that you don't respect, but you can't keep having that emotional response. It is fundamental to your heart and your wiring that you respect the one that you love. So don't ask, do I respect who I want him to be? Don't ask, do I respect who I think I can make him to be? Ask, do I respect who he is? Because here's the thing, if you give yourself to someone thinking that you can change them, you won't, right? That broken little puppy dog with sad puppy eyes will grow into a dog. And you'll have to walk him and feed him and clean up after him. And he's still going to be broken. And he's not going to be anywhere near as attractive. You're not going to fix him. God can fix him, right? But not you. What you want to find out is not, can I respect him or would I respect him? You ask, do I respect him? Here's the thing. I've watched way too many marriages fall apart because the gal married a funny guy only to find out she was stuck with a class clown. In the end, that the laughter didn't last. The temporary thrill didn't last. He didn't change into the person she had projected on him. He just was who he was. So here's some questions he's asking. Fundamentally, does he love God? Not does he go to church, but does he love God? Is he somebody who actually responds to the love of God? Right? Does he know how deeply he is loved by God? And, and is grace doing this deep and beautiful thing in his heart? Why? Because the more deeply he knows of his love for God, the more powerfully he's going to be able to love you. The more he experiences the unconditional love of God, the more he's going to be able to move in unconditional love toward you. Right? You need that. We all do. So ask, does he love God? Is he the kind of God who, the kind of guy who, who, whose behavior matches his words? Is he a hard worker who loves and serves others? Is he the kind of person who's learned to put other people, people's needs above his own? Is he the kind of guy that when I look at him, I see that there's a pattern where he has already learned how to delay gratification? Is he the kind of guy that when I look at him, he's the kind of guy who can endure emotional discomfort for a greater good? Because those are the sorts of things that are going to call respect out of your heart and you're going to know that he's going to love you well. Don't pursue image. Don't ask, how does this guy make me feel? Pursue character. Man, I'm going to encourage you. Um, We are primarily visual creatures and that's not all of us all the time, but men by and large are visually stimulated and visually driven. So don't chase just what looks good. You need to look past the figure to the character. You need to ask, is, is, is this a godly woman, right? She, she may be hot, but so is hell. You know, just to quote a line from one of, one of my favorite guys. Um, but that's true. I mean, we don't want um, short-term passion at long-term expense. You need to ask, is she uh, a woman that stirs my heart in beautiful ways? Is she a woman that loves God, who has been deeply undone by the love of God, is growing in her ability to love and serve others, to put other people's needs above her own? Does she inspire you to be a better man? You know, not, not to get what you want from her, but because there's something about her that actually sparks what is good in you. Do you find that, that there is this sense in which when you're with her, you are growing into the man that you know God's designed you to be. You are, you are willingly and joyfully enduring the discomfort, growing in strength 
because her presence empowers you and strengthens you. You guys, the bottom line is this. Looks fade. Emotions pass. The thrill of the moment is not lasting. For most of us, the reality is we looked as good as we were ever going to look on our wedding day. And it's only downhill from there, right? It doesn't get any better for most of us, right? And so that's going to fade. Character doesn't. Character grows and, and develops and becomes more and more beautiful. So what you want to do is take a look at the trajectory of growth. Where is this person in their character and where do you see them down the road? And do I want to be with them when they get there? Right? Not am I attracted to them now, but are they growing into the person I want to be with for the rest of my life? Are we on the same trajectory? Are we moving in the same direction? Because love for character, you love his character, you love her character, you're going to keep loving his body, you're going to keep loving her body. In fact, that deep oneness fuels emotional and physical intimacy. And so for the long term, it's essential that there is a deep level of oneness in issues of character. All right, so last, um, to our married men and women. How are you fostering habits of pursuit in your marriage now? There's a phrase that's used repeatedly through um, the Song of Songs where she says, and it's usually in those moments where she has, in a sense, yielded herself to him and there's a consummation of the love. She says, his banner over me is love. It's an interesting phrase because she's actually talking about a military banner of conquest. Now, we're not talking about patriarchal domination here. What we are talking about is intimacy. His banner over me is love. What she's saying is he's conquered my heart. And he's planted his banner over me. And that banner is increasing love, warmth, joy, tenderness, intimacy, love. Too many guys pursue their wives through the dating and engagement process all the way up until they say their vows and then they stop pursuing. <laughs> I crossed the finish line. I'm, I'm, I'm in, right? It's good. I, I don't need to work anymore right? So they stop. They took the hill and they planted their banner, but that banner doesn't say love. That banner says mine. And that causes problems because where he was pursuing and sacrificing before, he stops pursuing and sacrificing and she starts feeling used, rightfully so, which leads to conflict and difficulty. And that banner gets beat up and, and, and the conflict comes in and pretty soon that banner just says me. It's all about me. And at that stage, that marriage is very, very close to death because it's no longer about you. I'm not focused on you or what you need or what is good for you. I am thinking only about me and how you've failed me and how you don't live up to my expectations and you don't make me happy anymore and you don't make me laugh and you don't make me happy about me. Man, you need to know that you never get to a place where you can stop pursuing your wife's heart. And that's another way of saying, men, that you never get to a place where you need to stop growing in emotional and spiritual maturity. You never get to a place where you, need, where you can stop sacrificing for her good, pushing yourself into those realms of discomfort for her benefit. 
discovering more of who she is, asking questions instead of making statements. Why? Because there's more and more to discover. There's more to her. There's more depth. There's more beauty. There's more complexity. And you need to pursue her to discover it. And as you discover it, you find newer and deeper levels of intimacy and joy. You never get to the end of her because you never get to the end of love. Somebody like Steve, man, I'm exhausted though. My life is busy. It's hard. And it's just honestly not as fun as it used to be. And there's going to be seasons like that. But if you give in to the selfish urge to self-protect and put your needs first and put her secondary, to guard your own comfort, to protect your energy, you're planting the wrong banner in the middle of your garden. And you are undermining your ability to take joy in God's gift to you. You are limiting the boundaries and undercutting stability. How are you investing in intimacy? Ladies, how are you provoking intimacy instead of conflict? The Bible talks about a a positive kind of provoking. In Hebrews, it says that we are to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Provoke one another. It's a very powerful word, right? So then when I do this, you're actually provoked to respond. How are you provoking your husbands to love you? How are you provoking your husbands to respond intimately to you, to take delight in you? How are you pursuing the heart of your husband is another way of putting that in intimacy. You guys, next week, I'm going to unpack this more. Um, Next week, we're going to be looking at the closest thing I think we have in the Song of Solomon to kind of a a secret little love formula. Um, There's no... ABC, magic one, two, three to the perfect love life. But there are principles here that are powerful. And I guarantee you, you put them to practice in your marriages, it will light your intimacy up. Okay. We're going to be unpacking that next week and talking about what it looks like for a husband and wife to continue pursuing one another in intimacy. All right. For now, we're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to create some space, ask you guys to pray, do some business with, with God and allow God to, to speak to your heart. I don't know what he's stirring up, but I guarantee he'll speak to you. This is one of those weird sermons for me um, because honestly, we haven't talked about Jesus a whole lot and um, he's my favorite thing to talk about. And, and so as we wrap up, I want us to kind of, as we move toward communion, just remember that, that in all of this, what we're really talking about is discovering more of God and our relationship with each other. Remember, God is a God who, who set aside his comfort, set aside his safety, set aside his self-interests, to, to be on mission to win our hearts, right? When Jesus became man and lived the life we should have lived, he did it so that he could die the death we deserve to die. And then he rose again in new life to forgive us and invite us in once again to a loving relationship. All of these struggles, all of these difficulties we have highlight the beauty of God's love for us. That we have a God who's perfectly humble, and invites us into radical intimacy to meet the deepest needs of our heart. It's a beautiful, beautiful message of love. The most powerful, most profound love message ever given. The kind of message that's powerful and profound enough to actually change our hearts. Not just our behavior, but change our hearts. And in doing so, to free our behavior. To live for His glory and to live for our good. So let's remind ourselves that in all of this, We're not sufficient. 
We can't do this on our own. But we have a God who is working in us and working through us to free us, to change us into the beauty and, and the blessing of the gifts that He's given us. So let's pray. As we move into a time of response, we'll share communion in a moment. Father God, we thank You that You are a good God. I thank You, Lord, that as hard as this stuff is for us, it's often hard really because what's going on is we have to put somebody ahead of ourselves and we just don't like to do that. We have to put somebody's needs, somebody's desires above our own, and we're just really selfish, Lord. And I thank You that You love us in spite of that selfishness, and in fact, You love us enough that You paid the price for it to remove its guilt and to remove its shame and to free us into a new way of doing life, a radical new kind of love that will transform us. So I pray, Lord, that we would be a people undone by that love, that that message of your giving and your love would free us to give and to love. Lord, I don't know what's going on in everyone's hearts, but you do, so I pray that you will meet each one of us where we are. And that you will give us a vision for hope, a vision for restoration. Because we know, Lord, that if you can raise Jesus from the dead, you can change our hearts. You can change the hearts of those around us. You can restore our joy.